So hi, Yaroslav. Uh, I think I know you pretty long time, and you are one of the founders of NetBeans, right? Oh yeah, but that was a long time ago. When was it? 1997. Right. So it's more than 20 years. <laughs> What I'm curious, how it started. So I mean, you know, uh, where you got the idea? Was it uh, by a beer or in a pub or what's what's what was you know the ignition? Yeah, uh, it started at Charles University when we got into fourth or fifth grade. We were uh, asked to have a um, software project, some mm -hmm. collaborative work of uh, three or more students. Uh, so we s we were sitting, like 80 students were sitting in a in a room and listening mm -hmm. to presentations by various uh, teachers offering uh, to control a robot or build a database for a hospital. And uh, we were, me and few my friends, sort of annoyed by that and uh, we wanted to do something different. So uh, after the presentation we met and uh, we said, okay, we want to do Delphi for Unix, for X-Windows. Uh, so we sort of liked the idea and then walk around the university to find a professor who would like to lead us. And uh, then we found Adam Dingle and Adam Dingle was visiting professor from United States in, uh, in Prague. And uh, he didn't know what it means to lead seven students uh, on a software project. So he agreed and we started to work on that. So Xelfi was born at that time. Okay, and Xelfi was meant to be implemented in Java from the beginning, or no, not at all. It was supposed to be implemented in C plus um, plus, but uh, the problem was that uh, for the first six months, maybe even a year, we were meeting and discussing the general design, the great ideas how we will do it in C plus plus, searching for the uh, perfect uh, framework. At that time, Qt was not there. Um, um, GTK was not there either, so we were basically like we selected something called WX Windows, which was a portable mm -hmm. toolkit of 20 years ago. But it was so painful to get started, so I proposed to use Java, uh, which I, I and I gained some experience on uh, other project meanwhile with Java, and I proposed to use that, and everybody was smiling, saying no. And uh, so we were meeting for next few months, and at the end. Uh, after three months, I proposed it again, and we decided to do it in Java, which was a relatively clever decision. Now, the question is, how you, how did you found Java? So what was your the first, you know, contact with Java? Uh, we were, uh, so I was curious about languages. Uh, there was a presentation, something like uh, all the obscure languages of the world, uh, where we learned something about PL, PL1, something about Lisp, um, Uh, APL, so all the forgotten languages of the past. And uh, in addition to that, there was also a course about the new fancy language called Java. So I subscribed to it and uh, and I needed to do some homework as well. So that's how I got connected to Java. Ah, cool. And okay, then it was accepted that NetBeans or Xelfi is supposed to be written in Java. And have you changed the name immediately to NetBeans or you just... Pro No, no. Uh, we kept the name Xelfi, like Delphi mm -hmm. for X Windows, um, uh, for the whole um, time of the student project. 
And uh, actually, we finished the project, and it was relatively successful um, res- uh, with successful uh, result, because at the time, basically, nobody at the university was able to run Java program. So, oh. uh, so of course, when we did the presentation, we knew what parts work and which parts we should avoid. So the presentation was fantastic. Um, and nobody from the professors could try the program themselves because like not having mm-hmm. enough interest and knowledge in of Java. And also we had enormous amount of documentation because Java came with the invention of Javadoc. So mm-hmm. we could actually generate a lot of documentation from our code without actually documenting anything, which was impressive mm-hmm. as well. So uh, so we got good marks. Um, but yeah, actually, the Selfie project was, or the program was working, so we decided to sell it as a shareware. And we continued for up until the end of uh, year 1998, I guess, or seven, seven, seven. And um, the result of that is that we were contacted by uh, Roman Staněk, uh, the, the entrepreneur who, who was seeking for some investment opportunity and he, need, he needed some developers. And together mm-hmm. then we formed a company that later became NetBeans. Okay, so that's interesting. Okay, so, by the way, uh, two year, uh, two weeks ago, I reviewed a project, and the old old getter setters and constructors were surprisingly well documented with Javadoc. So I mean, this best practice still holds after twenty years. You no, know? uh, generate a lot of Javadoc, meaningless stuff, but uh, clients uh, are are very um, satisfied because we had you know all public methods were very well documented. If there, if there was. That was yeah. not our case. We just like generated documentation, yeah. so there was at least a list of the methods, yeah. which pretended I, I, to be a documentation. Yeah, I mean, uh, w- what's interesting is how well the old JDK methods are actually, how well they are documented, right? So if you look at JDK or Java or whatever came from Sun or now from Oracle, so the, uh, the Java doc is actually very good. And if you compare it with commercial project, it's really really poor because what the developers are doing, they are just rephrasing, you know, the method signatures usually or what the IDEs are doing. And that, that, that that's interesting. So what interests me, how long did it took to to make to have something usable? So there was uh, eight people, what I understood, mm-hmm. and you create the IDE. So uh how long did it take to create an IDE in Java? So, so first of all, we needed uh, the one year of going into pub without doing anything. Uh, okay. And then it was written in something like four months. Uh, and we got something relatively usable. Um, yeah, then f- next few months to polish it. So I do say eight months to get the mm-hmm. student project running. Um, but then when we founded the company... Uh, with Roman Staněk, uh, we threw the, most of the code, almost all code, away and started from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's like um, the approach for version 2.0. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, then once again, we threw it fr- uh, away and uh, started version uh, 3.0. So, okay. So one and, question. And what you did in the pub one year, was, was the time useful? No. Well, of course it was, but not for the project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is back then, you know, you probably draw some diagrams or whatever, right? Um, or, or at least describe the visions over the beer. Okay, very good. Because uh, I think 
right now what I would do, I would just start, right? Create a, some, a prototype, throw it away, rethink, and just starting and thinking at the same time, right? The, the problem was that we would start in wrong language. So that would ah, not work I, I at see. all. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if your, lang- if your language is set, then of course, yes, you can start with prototypes. But You're um, right. If you are completely in flux, it's probably better to just talk. Okay. And who is Roman Staniek? So, you don't know? No. Really? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So, um, he was um, a director of Sybase, which is uh-huh. a database company uh, yeah. for Middle Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of bored with that job. So, he wanted to uh, establish a startup, startup in okay. Prague. Uh, or in Czech Republic, um, and he did it. Uh, he managed to sell NetBeans to Sun Microsystems. Then he left, mm-hmm. and he founded another startup called Systinet, which was about mm-hmm. um, web services, UDDI, uh, oh, enterprise orchestra- orchestration, <laughs> all the important stuff that is SOAP, which is dead these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and he managed to sell it to HP. And uh, since then, he created a business intelligence company called Good Data. So right mm-hmm. now, he's uh, still working in Good Data. Um, um, and it's probably yeah, his longest running startup. Uh, still, still Java right now? No. Oh, uh, as far as I know, they are polyglot. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, uh, like, uh, certain things are written in Java. Some things are written in uh, different languages. Python. Uh, they also even use uh, the... Yeah, Ericsson is using the functional language. Uh, this is uh, Erlang. Erlang, yeah. They also tried Erlang. So, they are really polyglot, which um, is so easy with Docker images and uh, all the cloud infrastructure and microservices. You can be very polyglot if you want. If you want, yeah. Uh, okay, so we have the third version of NetBeans. So, you started over, and the company name is now NetBeans, and the product is NetBeans, right? Well, the company... Are you talking about the time 18 years ago? Yes, yes. So, yeah. the, the yeah. Roman Staniak uh, so, uh, founded the company, NetBeans. Was your idea to name it NetBeans or whose idea was it? Yes, it was my idea, of course. Now, very good. Yeah, really? Uh, nice. <laughs> so, um, when we were about to found the company, we were investigating different approaches. Whether, uh, and one of them was to like built upon uh, the student project to, bu- mm-hmm. to continue building an IDE. The other option was to just fit into an existing IDE. Do you mm-hmm. remember the IDEs of that time? Sun Java Workshop, J- J- yes, Sun Java Studio, the... Semantic Visual Cafe. Oh, then, perfect. That's it. Uh, Power J. Then the, uh, how? Power, Power J. That was, Power J? Yes, that was done by Sybase and also JBuilder uh, J, J Build, by Borland. JBuilder? Yeah. And uh, I wanted to try because of the name. It was called Code Warrior. Code Warrior, yes. That's, uh, that was there as well, right? Yes. The, the coolest name ever, Code Warrior. Yeah, naming. Naming is the important Yeah, thing. yeah. The net means also nice. Okay. <laughs> So uh, we were basically investigating the option whether we could uh, somehow describe the topology of a network 
uh, and fit into those IDs, into the existing IDs. And how can you fit into existing ID? Well, there was the specification called uh, Java Beans. So you mm -hmm. would need to create Java Beans describing the topology of the network. So I wrote down the proposal or uh, yeah, basically a paper describing how that could be done. And I needed a name. And of course, like it would be uh, Java Beans for network. So I call it NetBeans. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to be the pluggable components into into uh, uh, any ID. Uh, later, we just give up on that effort because like extending the Java beans could work for simple stuff, but not for something as complicated yeah. as we wanted. But uh, did uh, you have you have you have you got uh, the prototype running on? You remember the bean box? No, the I bean don't. box. It looks. It was like. Um, it came from, from with the JDK, so you can run visual Java beads inside a Zendbox. And I think the name was Beanbox, Java Beanbox. So you can run it. It was like a very small, not IDE. It was like a, a, just a window. And you can just open Java beans within the Beanbox. It was JDK 1.1. One, one, one. Yes, uh, I think I, I do have some memories of something like that. <laughs> the problem is that uh, if you want to describe the topology of network, you need connections between the beans. And yeah. uh, the Java Bean 1.1 specification was not good enough for that. There was a proposal okay. for uh, enhancing the Java Bean specification called Glasgow Java Beans. And In, it actually, was it Infobus? It was not Infobus. It was okay. uh, the Bean context. Okay. Uh, and it actually got somehow integrated into JDK 1.2, but it was so complicated that no ID actually implemented that. <laughs> so again, that would not work for the, for the, uh, for the um, uh, integration at all. But what, so, so at the end, we basically decided to build the ID and actually I created an abstraction over the bean context, Java beans, which is called NetBeans Notes API. So the Notes mm -hmm. API was basically the the abstraction uh, for connecting uh, Java beans into a tree-like structures. And uh, that was basically the base of NetBeans, the ID. Uh, so, but originally, let's go back to the name. Uh, Roman Staněk was in favor of using uh, a name called LimeTree for the product. So, uh, mm -hmm. so the ID was supposed to be called LimeTree. And there was a competition uh, internal uh, vote when mm -hmm. uh, everybody could suggest a name and there was a voting and uh, every uh, guy had uh, one vote except Roman Staněk as a founder uh, with majority he had 30 votes so at the time uh, his proposal Lime Tree won because we were just 15 at the time mm -hmm. Uh, but it turned out that there are some uh, trademark issues with that name. And so we were searching for a different name. And then uh, somebody re uh, realized, okay, what about the NetBeans name? That was not that bad. Uh, so, and basically NetBeans was selected by completely by an accident. But, Very I, good. but I'm the inventor of the name. So the, there was a 30 against 15, right? In the vote. So 15 uh, engineers versus uh, one founder, right? Well, maybe it was something like uh, 37 <laughs> against 7. But, uh, but the case was decided before it even started, of course. And could you buy something already? Or you just developed? So could you 
buy the version 3 of NetBeans or what was the business plan? Um, that, uh, so the, uh, we were actually selling the version 2.0. Uh, okay. You could download it for evaluation peri- period uh, and you could buy it. Uh, the biggest success was uh, with the version uh, called X dot X2, NetBeans X2, which was ex- an enhanced version of uh, NetBeans running on uh, uh, JDK2. Because at that time there was a uh, nasty thing with the renaming of the Swing packages. Originally exactly. Swing came out with Com Sun, Sun Swing, exactly. and then it was renamed to Java X Swing. And mm-hmm. NetBeans was the first ID that uh, supported this uh, change and uh, was running f- f- fine with JDK2. So people were actually buying a lot of uh, licenses for this uh, uh, NetBeans X2 version. And that probably attracted Sun Microsystems. So they were willing to buy. Uh, How much was company. it? You know it? You remember? How expensive was it? 60 or something. Oh, $60. Like that. Or for that time, there was nothing. I remember all all IDEs were pretty. There was like standard professional in the enterprise. And the enterprise was always, you know, several thousand euros because their database, connectivity, and whatever, professional, I don't know what they had. And, and standard was just basic IDE. Um, yeah, I yeah. think we had some different uh, <clears throat> uh, and additions as well. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the pricing, and I think people were mostly interested in Swing anyway, which was in this in the basic mm-hmm. version. And um, I think around 1999, I also looked at uh, NetBeans. What I didn't like is, and this is why I didn't use it for lo- for longer time. Uh, I, I I try to add some jars, and the problem was there was no class path. As I remember, I had to mount them. Yes. And I say, what the hell is mounting? They are just crazy. I mean, I would just like to standard class path. And this was just mount. And the concept was nice, but I didn't like the idea that, that this is not like playing Java rather than something very specific. And uh, yeah, this was the problem. My problem was the early NetBeans days. But did it change completely later? Yeah, uh, um, because Java changed. I think in the, in the early days of uh, Java, you actually would do some form of mounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people like the project, the, the project that people would develop in the early days was really just a set of uh, class path routes, mm-hmm. and that was it. So NetBeans basically, NetBeans philosophy was derived from that. But later the projects became more complicated. Um, people started to use JSPs or uh, servlets and uh, uh, and those uh, actually require different approaches exactly. Than, exactly. Uh, than just uh, like a flat class path of, uh, of classes. So uh, we struggled with that for a while, but then uh, we came out with a project system that uh, is in NetBeans up until today. Okay, so and and then uh, the the NetBeans company was so you got the attention from Sun with X two version of NetBeans, and how you got the attention? You got you know uh, email from Scott McNeely or what happened? Uh, well, that was uh, that was the hard work of Roman Staniek and a uh, few uh, American speaking employees. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing is that uh, I, I remember Roman uh, saying once that. Um, he managed to sell the company to uh, to Sun Microsystems 
uh, and that was the best or or, or the, the most that was possible over phone because we had no subsidiary in uh, Silicon Valley. We were mm-hmm. basically operating over the phone from Prague and uh, that was definitely challenging. So for the mm-hmm. f- other companies like uh, Systinet and uh, Good Data, they all have uh, the headquarters in uh, San Francisco area because mm-hmm. then, well, you know, you go in Silicon uh, Valley, you shake a tree and a venture capitalist falls down on a, mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, on a pavement and you can talk to, talk to him. While in Prague, you shake a tree and there are no venture capitalists who would fall just beer falls down right in um, Prague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay um and this was yeah and then it was sold and what happened then i mean so there was some discussion with scott or with james or you know remember that the great uh, the guy who actually bought us was uh, jonathan schwartz ah okay so that's good because he later became uh, became uh, the um ceo of uh Sun yeah exactly Systems. So uh, that's good because having a CEO who can spell NetBeans is better than a CEO who does not know even know yeah. what it is. So that was which role had Jonathan back then? You know, remember that he which? was he uh, he, ha- he got a lot of money to support uh, independent uh, out of Sun development or support of Java. So that's exactly what he was oh, doing. Okay. He spent some money on uh, on NetBeans. So. Yeah, Jonathan really liked NetBeans back then. I remember he always supported NetBeans. That's true, yes. Yeah. Okay, so you sold it to Jonathan and then it became open source, I guess, right? That was sort of surprising. But uh, yeah, so we got acquired uh, at the end of 1999. And uh, in uh, five months, it was the uh, Sun decided that we will go open source. Um, okay. Um, so we did. Um, um, and and that, was, that was, of course, a great thing to be since then i don't want to develop closed source software at all i'd like to develop just open open source if possible uh mm-hmm. because it's so much like uh, with, with in-house software you are at mercy of uh, the business decisions and if you code something it can be lost forever mm-hmm. because yeah. it's it never will be seen from outside of the world Yes. With open source, everything you do is going to be seen. Whether that gets mm-hmm. into the product or not, that's a different question. But at least it's not completely lost. So I like open source very much. And in addition to that, it is a little bit uh, insurance for the for for client. If it, if I do something for my client and it's not business critical, I always ask them. We can do it you now in open fashion, because if I disappear, someone someone else could lend us you know and uh, and take over because a lot easier but if i do something close source for my clients and I, and i go away you know the chances are, are very low that someone can pick up and proceed with the project so um this is could be also good for the business for my clients a uh, question regarding the so. netbeans yes, that's the uh, is correct <laughs> when it happened with uh, with jonathan was it 1999 2000 uh, 1999. Uh, the deal was done on 20th October of 1999. Oh, this is really early. So uh, yeah, that is. It, it, it took just two years. So it that, it, it, it went fast. But uh, the 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 thing is, well, actually, Sun Microsystems uh, had the JDK, but the but Sun was incapable to create IDE. 
So mm-hmm. uh, that was the Sun Studio. Uh, mm-hmm. so, sorry, Sun Workshop. Uh, in studio, yes. I still have the CDs. <laughs> and it was not really usable. So yeah. um, actually, well, when they had the option to buy a company uh, from Czech Republic, which was cheap, uh, that could uh, give them uh, 100,000 of subscribed users for almost nothing, why not do it? And yeah. um, so for them, it was just like no-brainer. Uh, so Sun mm-hmm. paid the money and uh, acquired us and probably was expecting that uh, NetBeans will end up as any other acquisition by Sun Microsystems. I mean, like completely mm-hmm. vanish in a few mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we were the longest surviving acquisition Sun ever did. So um, And Hotspot as well, right? Hotspot from JVM is also... Was the Sun acquired? I think the company from Smalltalk, and this is the Hotspot Hotspot JVM right now. So I, I don't remember. I don't. Uh, I don't know anything about uh, the company uh, doing uh, about a company doing Smalltalk and being acquired. I know that Sun Labs were uh, investing heavily in self language, and that the team uh, working on the self language uh, was. Basically, okay. optimizing, like this. Op- optimizing this could be. Uh, hotspot, mm-hmm. but that's not an acquisition. That was just okay. No, no, you're right. But transfer I... from uh, laboratories to to product. Okay. Um, a question: What I had is, have you? Uh, what was the package structure? Was ComNetBeans, and you had to rename it to something OrgNetBeans, right? During the open source phase, or was it just rightly named back then? Do you remember that? Um, yes, I do. Um, so. Originally, well, it, it this is something that got me into the API design business, because mm-hmm. one thing is one advice, common advice is code against interfaces, not the implementation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. When, when we tried that, we actually realized that we are fully mixing implementation and interfaces, and well, there is no clear separation of. Uh, what should be public and usable by other parties, and what is internal implementation detail? So, uh, and this this happened in uh, 1998, and the, in a response to that, we what we what we did is we repackaged the classes that we were considering API into Org Open IDE package uh, namespace. Ah, perfect. And it's still part of uh, NetBeans. So, yes, uh, it is, still is. Yes. But this, is, I think, is uh, based on your abstraction from Glasgow, right? Uh, well, uh, there is uh, org openid.notes package, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. the abstraction uh, of, the, okay. of the Glasgow Java Beans. So from the early days, the NetBeans was separated in the API and SPI. Uh, before we got acquired uh, by uh, by Sun Microsystems, yes, we already knew what to do. Then it was a perfect acquisition, actually, for Sun, right? For Sun, because they got you know something which is could be already open sourced. Usually, if you try to open source internal project, there's a lots of junk <laughs> which has to be refactored. In your case, it was uh, clearly structured. Uh, of course, it was completely clear structure. No, no, clear structure, but, but I, at least but you had to... I, uh, I think that uh, Jesse Glick, who was uh, uh, doing a lot of work on the on the open sourcing, had to clean up a lot of things anyway, so it was... Uh, ah, Jesse, I know him from the from, from mailing lists. He did lots of t- test harness and stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he even did the new project, so... Uh, 
his, so, uh, his contributions are clearly visible in Netbeans. Okay, so I looked at your LinkedIn profile. So this was the, your first uh, time. So you were the Netbeans engineer, and then you are the Netbeans platform, Netbeans platform architect. And this is just because the company changed, right? Or was a different role? So you became then NetBeans platform engineer, I think, right? Uh, I would not differentiate that. Uh, so I was one of the founders, and since then I was basically uh, designing the architecture. And okay. that continued uh, and probably continues up until mm -hmm. now. But uh, um, I... Uh, Then, then I basically. Uh, so, so the thing is that uh, I, you, I actually don't care about the ID much. I care about mm -hmm. the platform, okay. and um, and uh, over time the ID grow to bigger, uh, to be too big to be designed by one person. So we needed to learn how to design uh, or how to apply API the best API design practices in a team. Uh, and I focused uh, mostly on the NetBeans platform. Are you still involved with the Apache open sourcing NetBeans process right now or not? Uh, I Yes, I contribute there. Um, mm -hmm. Because actually um, certain tools in Oracle Labs organization when, uh, where I'm working right now are built uh, on top of NetBeans platform. So we need to uh, make sure that uh, whatever we need is part of the Apache NetBeans Hey, cool. So this is good to know because so then someone from Oracle is also working on the open source version of, of, of Apache Netbeans. But you actually changed to Oracle Labs, right? Uh, yes, I did. Well, 2014. After, after 15 or more years on a single project, it's probably time to change. Yeah, you are excused. So 15 years are okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you started um, with something interesting, but because you started, before you started with Graal, I, uh, you probably also know to Tony Apple, right? Mm -hmm, indeed. And he uh, did the Duke script thing and you were also involved, right? Uh, a bit. Yes. Uh, yes. Um. Do you help him a little bit? But what you did is actually the Java in a browser. <laughs> Back then, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's. Uh, and what was it? You know what it, what it, what did it? I think. Uh, so, um, yeah, somehow in, um, yeah, okay. So let's start with the Oracle acquisition. So when when Sun was acquired by Oracle, we were sort of afraid that NetBeans is going to be in tough position because Oracle had their own ID, J Developer. Um, so I was focusing on solving the situation, and mm -hmm. um, my proposal was to make sure JDeveloper switches to OSGI, NetBeans can support OSGI, and we, if that is what we have, we can use OSGI as a common ground for exchange, uh, for somehow mixing and combining NetBeans with JDeveloper. So this is what I was doing up until uh, 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, when we actually managed to successfully f move this project forward. So right now, if you download JDeveloper, it's basically built on top of NetBeans platform. Uh, mm -hmm. Doing system, form editor, profiler, uh, module system, all is coming from, uh, from uh, NetBeans. So mm -hmm. it's so easy to share. So that mm -hmm. I was satisfied with that. And I thought in 2000, uh, 2012 that I need a new challenge. 
Yes. Um, and I said, okay, maybe the biggest problem for Java is that uh, it's not moving forward as much as uh, the JavaScript space. And I'd like to do something with that because uh, Java is good ecosystem, good language, and I would like uh, to bridge the gap between uh, JavaScript and Java. Um, and I, uh, based on that, I was basically trying to find out how you could use the HTML technologies and uh, still write in Java. And I don't mm -hmm. mean server-side Java. I mean yeah. client-side yeah, Java yeah. when you basically can uh, manipulate with the DOM, ma uh, modify HTML, modify CSS, and um, like use Java as a full-featured language on the for the client-side development and even make it run in a browser in spite of browsers trying to like avoid mm -hmm. running Java at all. So that was basically the starting position in 2012. And, uh, and it worked. So I take a, took a look at that. And uh, what it did, so what is it? It's, it looks like the Java Link uh, API running in browser, right? This was my impression. It uh, It's so wild. Uh, like the, the whole idea is uh, to be able to somehow connect the renderer which is uh, either a browser or HTML rendering component like WebView uh, mm -hmm. with a Java virtual machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending on the type of uh, platform that you target, you can have different renderer and different mm -hmm. virtual machine. So if you run on Android, what's the best virtual machine there? Yeah, Dalvik, probably. Indeed. So... Uh, and th this is basically, uh, or I started with those ideas, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Tony Apple moved uh, or finished them. So uh, uh, as part of his uh, Duke script project. So mm -hmm. basically, uh, if you, uh, the idea with with the Duke script thing is that uh, you just select the best Java virtual machine and best renderer. So for the, uh, for the Android, you select Dalvik as the Java virtual machine and you use the WebView component that comes with uh, Android UI. If you run on uh, iOS, then mm -hmm. what's, what's the best UI there? It's a web view from, uh, uh, from um, UI web view component from uh, Apple. And mm -hmm. uh, Do you know uh, Java virtual machine that would run on uh, uh, iOS? Uh, probably uh, something uh, uh, what uh, 68,000 port, right? Something like this. Oh, there was uh, some attempt uh, from uh, Oracle to do ARM. So, to, I mean, to, to ARM. Do the, to do the ARM uh, virtual machine, but the problem there is it uh, it was just an interpreter, so that one was slow. But uh, then the, RoboVM. There, Robo there is RoboVM which is an open source project that can uh, translate uh, ahead of time uh, Java into ahead of time uh, binary. And that uh, that's fantastic. And also recently there is something called uh, multi-OS engine from Intel that mm -hmm. can do the same thing. Uh, again, ahead of time compilation of Java into uh, uh, ARM. Uh, mm -hmm. iOS ready binary. So again, you just bind these two and you can run. So, uh, and the same thing uh, applies to desktop. On desktop, you mm -hmm. can use uh, the regular uh, hotspot 
JVM and you connect it to some uh, render. Uh, my work uh, was using JavaFX WebView integration, mm -hmm. but uh, Tony uh, also offers a native WebKit or uh, some Jake's browser components that uh, render more effectively. They are better okay. uh, browser components. And uh, one thing that I also did was uh, ability to take the Java and transform it transpile it into JavaScript. And then you can actually run the same application directly in a browser. So this is what I meant. This is this cool stuff I saw in the browser. This is back to browser, I think, right? Be, yes. Back to uh, and browser. And um, the transpile, oh, this was a transpiler. So you wrote a transpiler, which... I, I could do uh, ahead of time or even just in time transpilation of Java bytecode to, um, to do JavaScript. So... Uh, you could basically took your jar files, convert it, convert them into uh, JavaScript, and load them in a browser, and that that works. So this is cool stuff. So this is uh, truly next challenge after NetBeans platform. But but what it, you, but what I have found out is that uh, in spite of uh, being able to run Java everywhere with this uh, stuff, people don't care uh, because. Um, if you are Java developer, then uh, yeah, you are most likely a backend developer, and mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to know anything about the front end. So uh, you tell your junior colleagues to write the front end, and junior colleagues are not afraid of JavaScript, so they will switch to JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you are a junior guy and you are asked to run something on a server, you are not going to do Java anyway because you know JavaScript. So mm -hmm. you will use Node.js on the JavaScript. So basically the whole effort of like Java running everywhere in a browser, it's, um, it's too late. It uh, looks like Java is uh, the new COBOL. Nobody is going mm -hmm. to use Java for new projects. So mm -hmm. that's another reason why I think the work that we are doing in Oracle Labs is probably a better direction for at least saving the Java virtual machine. The the problem what I also see is the Java the new JavaScript versions. They they are looking more and more like Java. So and actually easily switch between Java and JavaScript, and uh, it, you can build almost identical code. You know, even the lambdas. There's a little bit, you know, some syntactic differences, but it is very very easy to learn right now. What I really didn't like is the earlier versions of JavaScript with uh, with the vars and functions and uh, you know modules, and this was I didn't like at all. But right now, with uh, the ES6 modules, and uh, we have almost classes and. The uh, API become more robust. Uh, it's just nice language, I have to admit. So, are you coding in uh, this version of JavaScript, or are you using also TypeScript? Uh, I'm I'm using um, so I'm when I'm coding, I'm coding in plain JavaScript, and if I'm coding with my clients, what I advise to do this, I also advise to use a first plain JavaScript. And then they can decide whether they should add TypeScript or not. I would not start with TypeScript. And the reason for that is, as first, if you probably know me, is unnecessary dependency. And the problem is, if you show Java developers TypeScript, you get the same crazy stuff what you get in Java. Dynamic proxies, factories, interfaces, what you probably don't need in a small web app. So what you do is try to keep it simple with ES6. And I even try, you know, 
to uh, not to uh, transpile with Babel. Just uh, if we know the browsers in an enterprise, you can do this. You say, okay, we just target Chrome. So keep it simple, no transpilation, you know, uh, and then this is crazy fast and there are no dependencies. My clients are happy because there are no migrations. So this is my way to do. But um, if they say we cannot, it never happened, but if they could say, you know, we have problems with refactoring or whatever, then I say, okay, then we try TypeScript or React Flow or whatever. But um, I, 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 do not start with that because it's exactly what I did in backend as well with Java E. No dependencies st- stay with the core and there are no migrations. And larger companies really ha- hate to migrate something without a reason. And if we would do you no know, TypeScript, Elm or whatever right now, the chances are very high that we will have to migrate in the next few months or a uh, few years, two years. And no one liked that. Uh, where do you want to migrate? No, yeah, with when a framework uh, Angular one to Angular two, for instance, right? Oh, that's not TypeScript. Uh, no, no, but TypeScript. I, I Angular, know, but ty- Angular is a fantastic example of uh, killing your own framework by uh, yeah, yeah, trying to yeah. re- but, uh, produce version two which is incompatible. No, but TypeScript is more like uh, you you are extremely dependent on the on the language if you do it more, and you can only hope that part of the TypeScript become part of the platform. Um, they they work very closely, but I mean, the added value is small if you start small, and then you can decide whether you can use TypeScript or not. It's not like, you know, we have to decide up front because you can always uh, add TypeScript afterwards. Uh, have you noticed uh, some increase in the amount of tests that you need to write? Because I would expect a dynamic language like JavaScript needs probably more tests than uh, a typed language. Yeah, uh, what I have to admit, we don't have a lot of uh, unit tests, although it is fashionable. uh, We don't have a lot of business logic in the client. So what we have, presentation logic, some offline logic, and what we do, we use end-to-end tests more. So we test more, I I try to invest more in end-to-end tests from the beginning, you know, to automate the full UI. That means Selenium and web drivers like this, so clicking in a browser... Yeah, what I yeah exactly. Not Selenium is a little painful to use. We use Cypress, for instance, an open source tool. is easier to use uh, than Selenium, and is also uh, headless. Uh, we use this, and um, and you can use you can start with you know Chrome or outside Chrome, and uh, we invest in this first. And sometimes, if you have crazy business logic, then we write straight mocha tests or something like this. So just keep it simple. But this works well. As we had, I don't know, I did 40% of my time, I would say, JavaScript native right now. And the same mindset as Java E, and the developers really like it. So new JavaScript developers know what to learn. I show them MDN, and that's it, web APIs. And the Java, Java developers really appreciate that the JavaScript looks like now like Java. So, But so, this is a side... T- and does, yeah. does it mean that... Uh Basically, those developers also consider using the same language on the server side. Never, never. I get asked about Node.js uh, a lot of time, but uh, I have to admit, in all my project, everyone is really amazed still with the productivity of Java E. And r- right now, with MicroProfile and, uh, and Jakarta EE, it is uh, the demand is like crazy. So, but, it's, but what, uh, what about the logic that needs to be shared between the client and server? Uh, we don't have a lot of that. Uh, back in some projects, we had bin validation or something like this, which could be so. We use NAS one for that, for instance. You could use it like this, but uh, 
Yeah, the truth is, this is not a common use case to have shared code between client and server. Well, so right about, now in my project. What about validation? So basically, yeah, unity. bit validation, what I meant, bit validation. And this really depends on the project. Um, if you have, uh, for instance, um, this is not exactly a thin client, but uh, GSF is able to do this, Prime Faces, the new version. And if we have a plain framework, I mean, um, what, what you can do, you can use NAS1, and use the Java code, uh, JavaScript code on the client side and validate your stuff. And on the server, what you can do, you can load the JavaScript as an interface and use the interface, you know, internally, and the performance is good enough. But back to you. We, we should do another episode. What I would like to do, uh, you know, we, sh we should uh, talk uh, really deep about this topic and API topic. But right now, I'm more interested about Graal. So you are running in Oracle Labs. Um, you are working on Graal since the beginning, right? Uh, of 2014 or something? Well, um, it's the beginning of the Prague office. Uh, but uh, Graal itself started uh, in Linz in Austria. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, way sooner than I joined. Okay. So um, I remember that in 2005... I was invited into Linz uh, Johannes Kepler University to give a talk about NetBeans platform because uh, uh, there was a cooperation of, of that university with uh, Sun Labs uh, on Hotspot. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, <clears throat> basically one of the things that they were doing, they were visualizing like graphs, the compiler decisions uh, for optimizing the Java code. Uh, and that tool is called IGV, Ideal Graph Visualizer, which is actually one of the tools built on top of NetBeans platform still in use. Because before we start with that, one question to you. Do you, do you know the project Maxwell and Sunlabs? Uh, Maxine, I assume. No, Maxwell. Like Maxwell were... Um, it was in 2007, we had a chat with James Gosling, and what they tried to do is to uh, write JVM in Java. It's called Maxine. Maxime. Maxine. It's a Maxine uh, virtual machine. Yes, uh, I know. I know it. And actually, it's based for what we do uh, right now. Um, just uh, cool. uh, in order... Well, Maxine was great for uh, the research, but in order to productize it, uh, we need to take a step-by-step -step approach. We cannot just rewrite the whole hotspot um, mm -hmm. at once because it's then hard to um, get into production. Mm -hmm. So the approach that uh, we have is now split into Graal compiler, mm -hmm. which is replacing just a C2 compiler with a different compiler written in Java. Uh, one, one question. So the, the end goal is to have uh, Java written in Java. Uh, JVM written in Java, right? Is this the end goal of Graal? Well, um, that's not the goal. That's the solution for a problem that Java has currently. Okay. Uh, because um, uh, if you look at the innovation in, uh, in the s compiler space of Java... Um, what do you remember any innovation in last 10 years? Innovation in the compiler, I, and I don't mean Java C, I mean the bytecode compiler into the assembly. 
No, it's uh, just lambdas, right? This is the dynam- invoke dynamic, I think, was the not, last. That's not in the compiler either, because it's uh, generating uh, lambdas are basically generating the um, uh, the uh, proxy classes behind the scene with asm uh, when uh, when you first use uh, the lambda. So then it's just the old C2 compiler as we were using it in 2006. So mm-hmm. the compiler is basically 11 years old and nobody mm-hmm. touched it significantly or improved it significantly since then. Mm-hmm. And it's still a great compiler, which means uh, Cliff Click did good job when uh, writing it, but uh, I, we think we can do better. And, okay. uh, and one, one of the reasons why people are afraid to touch the compiler is that it's written in C++. So mm-hmm. in order to work with the compiler, you need to learn C++. You need to learn completely new build system. You need, you don't know how to debug it. If you Which build to, system is it? Of course, it's Make. But, okay. Uh, but do you know how to debug? Uh, the, no, no. The I, I, compi- my, my uh, I, I mean, how to debug the uh, Hotspot C2 compiler? I don't know. You need to launch the JVM in some fancy mode with... Uh, switches that I don't even understand. <laughs> and, and then you need your ID to understand the source structure of uh, C2 compiler. Actually, NetBeans do understand it because the uh, C and D team working on support for C actually um, created uh, perfect support for that. But it's still painful. And as a result of that, the C2 compiler is not moving forward. And uh, which, for example, shows in the way Nashorn works. Nashorn is far slower than the best uh, JavaScript engine around. And one of the reasons is that the support from the, you, the... There is nobody to build support that would optimize or use the Nashorn constructs in a better way and uh, generate better, um, better uh, uh, native code from that. Uh, which is not true for what we do with, with Graal. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the reasons why Graal is more approachable is that it's written in Java. So if you want to understand how your compiler works, you just get the sources, you put a breakpoint anywhere in the compiler code, and you run your Java program. Mm-hmm. And once the compiler kicks in, your breakpoint is going to be hit, the, uh, the program stops, your IDE shows you exactly where you are in the compiler, and you can step through the program and find out what's happening. It, I'm, not refer- say, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's uh, like easy to get started. It's possible. Of course. So if you're referring to compiler, you do not mean the Java C, you mean the JIT, right? Yes, that's uh, one of the overloaded terms that we are forbidden to mention in, here in the team. Don't say compilation. Nobody knows what kind of compilation is that. Okay. So, yes, uh, usually that means compilation of the bytecode to, uh, to the final assembly. So the, the Graal first, uh, it, it doesn't have the actual compiler. You still use the Java C, and this is like the VM. This is called Graal VM. This is what you're referring to? It's, well, Graal compiler is the most important part of the Graal VM. Uh, okay. And it's a replacement for a C2 server-side compiler or alternative to C2 server-side compiler, which is in current uh, hotspot VM, mm-hmm. which so it's- kicks in whenever you find out that, or the VM finds out that some, some part of the program is hot, it calls into the compiler and tells the compiler to produce the assembly. 
So mm -hmm. that's the place when uh, the Graal compiler gets hooked in and does a different job than uh, C2. So to in order to run Graal VM, you still need the actual VM, right? So the, uh, how to call it, the JVM. Yes, that's true. And parts of the JVM are replaced. So they are like a hook, which is the Graal VM hook and the JVM, the, the, our JVM calls the Graal, right? So the hook is called uh, JVM CI. Uh, okay. It's a Java Virtual Machine interface. So it's a way how Java Virtual Machine can call into the compiler. And uh, this hook is part of JDK 9. So uh, mm -hmm. actually, when you want to use the Graal compiler on JDK 9, 10, or 11, uh, you just need the compiler jar file which, by the way, is part of the JDK as well. Uh, it's used for ahead-of-time compilation. So you just need a few switches to turn it on. First switch is use JVMCI compiler, and second is turn on Graal, or uh, provide the Graal as an alternative, uh, like external jar file, because it's all Java code. And that's all you, you need, and you will basically get the Graal VM. Uh, plus, the Graal VM comes with support for dynamic languages. But otherwise, it's it's that trivial. We are using production-ready JDK, and we are just replacing the uh, JIT compiler, because that's what we okay. know the best. So, the, what I would expect that for Java itself is Graal as fast as JVM. Um, Not faster, right? It is faster, I, sometimes. So um, you opti so because the, then you already pro performed some optimizations comparing to the old compiler. So there is already some innovation inside the Java to so, so, how to, so Java so, to bit bytecode, not Java bytecode, Java to machine code translation. Uh, bytecode to machine code translation. This would be the right. Yes. Uh, the Graal compiler itself has, uh, well, it's a different code base. The code base has not started with C2 at all. Uh, it's more like C1 compiler, which is the client-side <laughs> compiler. And, um, and then we performed uh, additional optimizations for seven years, and now we can be better than, uh, than C2. Um, cool. So, one, so one there's thing, already added value here already. Yes, certainly. Well, uh, for example, mm, uh, for example, Twitter is running on top of uh, uh, is running JDK with Graal compiler because that can speed up their uh, microservices by ten percent. Uh, A startup or what? Startup? No, the peak performance. So oh. when you when you run okay. th these programs, they get less garbage. Co they, they need to do less, uh, or the, the the program allocates less garbage because uh, the Graal compiler has better escape analysis, partial escape mm -hmm. analysis, and as a result of allocating less garbage, you spend less time in uh, the garbage collector, and you can run faster and save some energy, which in oh. case of a global service like Twitter makes a lot of difference. You mean uh, and the power. Power and energy. Basically. Power energy, yes. The first time I hear someone mentioning power. So in my project, you know, the, oh, everyone talks about RAM consumption and, and CPU sometimes, and no one talks about power consumption. This is a really crazy in, in enterprises. Like, you know, the power is paid by someone else, and no one cares about that, which is strange. But um, This is what we were doing in NetBeans as well, because when you produce the IDE, somebody else is going to run it. So that's his power, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, when you move to the cloud space, you need to carefully uh, 
compute how much power consumptions your system is going to have, right? Yeah. Because so you are, then you have you to are paying re- the bill. Then you have to rename NetBeans to Green Beans, you know. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, um, if I'm running more boring Java apps, what I usually do, uh, where when Graal could help me? Which kind of apps? So I would say lots of I/O or database or CPU cycles or what do you think would be the best case for Graal? Uh, CPU Com- sen- uh, sensitive computations, certainly. Uh, Algorithm. With I/O, that's the sh- that's the same thing. Um, yeah. Well, when talking about the Graal compiler. Uh, we are not going to help you with CPU because, oh, sorry, uh, with IO, uh, because IO, IO mm-hmm. is used, uh, IO. is the yeah, same thing. Um, yeah. What we are going to help a lot is uh, the allocations and uh, actually uh, a complicated code with lambdas because okay. uh, the hotspot C2 compiler has not been updated to modern coding constructs. Uh, but we are aware of the code that lambdas generate, and we can probably crack through the lambdas in a better way than C2 can. And this is especially to, uh, true when you, for example, code in different language than Java, like Scala. Mm-hmm. With Scala, uh, just run, run it on top of uh, GraalVM with Graal compiler, and your application is 20% faster without, any, without changing a single line of code. Just run it, and that's it. Cool. So for me, it could also affect me because uh, now we have decision: should we implement, you know, JPA qu- uh, queries with uh, lambdas or use you no know, SQL? So there's if this is even faster, then we could decide for uh, if you have or, or everything already loaded in memory. This could affect, you know, architectural decisions in Java projects. Actually, uh, well, for me, it's a no-brainer. You just use yeah, it, of course. and it's faster, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's not like it could affect. It, it's just it is uh, just switch, just switch, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> Why you have to switch then? Uh, because uh, you need to change the defaults. You need to change how you invoke your uh, Java virtual machine. And so, and so why we have those stretch defaults? So at one point of time, the Graal should be the new standard, right? Uh, that's our hope. Yes, we are working on that. Uh, I don't know if you see uh, the Java enhancement process for uh, Project Metropolis. Metropolis is the name? No. Yeah. Uh, uh, so um, actually, one thing that uh, we currently have is uh, uh, not that good initial uh, speed up. So usually applications running on top of uh, Graal, uh, f- the first few thousand iterations is slower. Uh, mm-hmm. Only then, when we reach the peak performance, we deliver on the promise of being of speeding everything. But that's good if you are running servers. This is uh, this is what you are interested in. Um, but we are trying to address that, and that's actually uh, the project uh, project Metropolis. So that, uh, okay. And uh, it's going relatively well. So yes. It, the chances are it will be become part of the JDK. If that happens, then uh, the default, instead of C1 compiler and C2 compiler, would be Graal compiler. So, cool. which would simplify the way how we maintain the code base. Because right now, uh, there are two different compilers, C1, C2. And with Project Metropolis, we would b- replace both of them with Graal compiler. And... Uh, that would mean single code base and moreover code base written in Java. 
which is easier to understand. So that's the promise that we are offering to the JDK team. We'll see whether okay. they accept it. That's interesting. So, uh, But you have also different component, and this is related to LLVM, right? So you can run LLVM code on Graal, so what I understood. Bitcode. Uh, uh, yes, uh, but that's more complicated. Uh, so how much time <laughs> do we have for talking? Uh, what we could do is we could uh, have the introduction now and then have follow-up, okay, if you like. Okay, because I'm running out of my battery. <laughs> okay. So, so you should be fast. So what's uh, so there is a LLVM part. How it's related to the compiler? Yeah, uh, you are jumping too quickly ahead. So instead of uh, starting with LLVM, we should start with Truffle. That's the Ex most important part. Yeah. Basically, uh, Java has not been, or Java Virtual Machine has not been uh, really successful in support for uh, of dynamic languages. Mm -hmm. um, the strict structure of uh, Java, when you need to know the parameters, you need to know the methods ahead of time when you do the compilation, when you emit the bytecode, makes it really hard to uh, support languages when everything is in flux, like JavaScript. Until you run JavaScript, or uh, one example that I give uh, is the most complicated uh, statement in dynamic languages. Can you imagine one? Most complicated statement in dynamic languages. Mm -hmm. I think uh, a caller method I can uh, imagine. Caller method, it's not simple, but there is uh, even one more complicated. And that's plus. So A plus B, that's the most okay. complicated thing you can have. Because you don't know anything about A, you don't know anything about B, And depending on the types of A and B, the plus will behave completely differently. It can So co coercion, you mean? Coercion, yeah, finding the right type. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in some which is which is beautiful, which is beautifully solved by JavaScript, right? <laughs> This A plus, A plus, you know. Uh, you know the talk. Uh, there's like the word talk of languages of making fun of JavaScript, where they do exactly this, you know object plus a number and object plus array and because of the uh, dynamic typecasting they get really funky effects yes and now imagine that you need to do this in runtime what mm -hmm. uh, what effect this has on a performance so mm -hmm. well, well there is an enormous switch statement when you need to say okay if a is object if it's string if it's number if it's uh, who knows what, then do something. And on the other side, you need to uh, switch based on the value of B as well. And like this language cannot be fast. This is what Nasson is doing, right? So they are, they are, they are compiling the, all the type saved in, in, in upfront, hoping that the type is right, then compiling to, to bytecode, and if it's not right, they, they generate again, right? That's uh, right. That's what they do. The, uh, and that's basically the solution. What you need to do is to observe what kind of runtime types are arriving into your program and based on them generate or speculate on the variant which is actually true for, uh, for uh, the execution of your program. So, because what has been observed is when you have a plus somewhere in middle of your source code, it usually receives numbers or it mm -hmm. receives strings. But it's mm -hmm. not like that sometimes it receives numbers, sometimes strings, sometimes objects. Usually the types are relatively stable. 
So, um, <clears throat> what uh, we have come up with is uh, API that simplifies writing this kind of speculative interpreters. So, mm -hmm. um, I use, or sometimes I do a presentation about, which is called talk to your compiler. So with Java, you basically write your program and you cannot talk to the compiler. You cannot like uh, tell him, okay, treat this field as a final field. Mm -hmm. You cannot tell, uh, and you cannot tell, okay, maybe I made a mistake. So now like throw away the code and uh, start from scratch. And this is exactly what Truffle offers. With Truffle, you have uh, low level constructs that allow you to, well, maybe high level, from depends on from from which perspective you are looking at that, but allows you to use certain constructs to talk to your compiler, and uh, yeah, for example, say okay, this field looks like um, uh, constant. So when you emit the code, treat this field as a constant, and this kind of hints that you give to the compiler can speed up your program significantly because instead of the reference and loading a field from somewhere it can take this field and treat it as a constant which results in way faster uh, assembly code so that's truffle and based mm -hmm. on truffle we have a wide uh, wild wide 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 uh, set of languages built on top of this api that allow us to execute javascript ruby r language Python, and also all the languages that are compiled to LLVM bitcode. Mm -hmm. But Java, back to JavaScript, uh, so you wrote another interpreter, or is it NAS one? Uh, yes, it's a, it's a new interpreter. It's a new okay. interpreter because it does not generate the bytecode. The bytecode, uh, the thing that uh, has been observed when watching the Nashorn team is that uh, they, on one side, they think about uh, the JavaScript code and on the, last, uh, on the other side, they should think about the assembly code. But they cannot uh -huh. do this mapping directly because meanwhile, they need to think about the bytecode and how they will generate the bytecode. So when another component in the system picks that up, it will generate the good assembly code. And that's an unnecessary indirection. So we don't have that one. Rather than that, we have the interpreter, which interprets the source code. And mm -hmm. then we have the final assembly code. So we skipped the middle step. Uh, and for that, like to do that, we basically had to write this part from scratch. Okay. And you are ECMAScript uh, 7? Yeah, 7, we are ECMAScript 8 compliant. Well, How you do that? Uh, so, so. <laughs> the, we have a whole team which tries to keep up with the latest. Spec. Okay. So I know that, for example, uh, big integer is coming into JavaScript, into the la mm -hmm. last, uh, latest specification. And uh, there is a guy working on the implementation of that. So it, I don't know, maybe it's even part of the code base somehow right now. So, oh, that is a high priority for Oracle running on that, it seems like. So that the JavaScript is efficiently, it um, runs on Gravel, right? Uh, on Truffle. Well, it's certainly a high priority for, uh, for us. Uh, uh, what uh, the goals are, uh, so we have support for Node. 
So basically, if you want to combine Node with Java Virtual Machine, we should be the platform of a choice. So we can we can give you the fast executing JavaScript together with Java Virtual Machine. We can combine it with Node APIs. So basically, you can use all the well, like you can mix these things together and use them uh, for production. So yes, JavaScript, Node, Java is high priority for us. Were you able to uh, reuse something from the Avatar project, or was this also clean room? So the, the original approach that we had uh, is based on uh, the Avatar project, Avatar JS project. Uh, however, uh, the Avatar JS project has a problem with running native modules. Okay. Uh, because uh, they actually re-implemented the interface to the virtual machine um, completely to be to use Nashorn. And uh, we really care about compatibility. So rather than that, we at the end decided to actually hook in on the level of v8.h file. So when Node talks to the virtual machine, to JavaScript virtual machine, it uses uh, uh, v8.h C file for communication. And what we have is re-implementation of this file. So basically every C code that talks through this API is going to run without any problems on top of uh, our implementation of Node, the Graal VM Node. This is actually very good news. So what I could do, I could take the Graal with Node.js and run my Babel on that, right? Yes, indeed, you could. Um, what, I, what I found on the, you say you have like 45,000 certified NPMs. So it seems like some NPMs are not compatible with that. Why not? So... Uh, the usual problems is that uh, these M, uh, these uh, NPMs assume something about the V8 implementation, uh, <clears throat> which uh, violates the standard. That's, okay. that's the biggest problem we have, because right now we need to run in multiple modes, like being compliant with the ECMA specification and being compatible with V8. So okay. uh, some of these assumptions... Uh, sometimes are not valid. But uh, what we usually do is trying to talk to the upstream projects and uh, fix the tests, not to be, not to rely on the implementation detail of V8. But this is actually uh, extremely good news. So really, so I, I actually could really switch to, uh, to JVM to build my JavaScript stuff. That would be perfect. Yes, uh, it should work. I do it myself. I, I basically delete Node from uh, from my local computer and I'm using GraalVM Node instead all the time. And it seems to work quite fine. Cool. That That's perfect. But I interrupt you with the LLVM and with your... Uh, but I couldn't, you know, could, uh, couldn't wait with the Node.js. Okay, so you, you mentioned Node.js mm -hmm. and now what's the next step? <laughs> Well, um, we have uh, support for those dynamic languages, but when we are so good in writing interpreters, we also decided to write an interpreter for uh, LLVM bitcode. So every ah. language that is, can be compiled with LLVM, we can interpret. And of course, like so, so basically you can write a program in C, and instead of compiling in, into a binary, you can compile it into the bitcode and interpret the bitcode with uh, GraalVM. C is a little bit boring, but what about Swift? Indeed. From, from Apple. Uh, I know, uh, so uh, we did some experiments with uh, Rust. So we mm -hmm. know we can do Rust. 
somebody would have to try Swift, but uh, because there's I, no problem I, in doing that. It should work. Because uh, Apple uh, uh, just investigates Swift on the server. They even uh, had a guy from, from Netty, they, they, they some server side. And I mean, Netty is uh, lots of I.O. And I think uh, um, Swift on JVM should, my understanding is scale better than Swift on nothing because there is no, you know, there is no experience on running Swift native. So I think this could be an interesting part. And Swift is a really nice na language if you compare that to plain C. Uh, yeah, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> it's yeah. like 60 years older. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So you have an interpreter for the bit code, which is generated by LLVM. Yeah, and uh, actually, because we have so high performance interpreters, what we basically achieve is something like 10 to 20% slowdown uh, against the uh, optimized version of the native binary, which is not significant. That that's significant, no. especially for the use case when we, uh, what we want to achieve is interop with Java or interop with the dynamic languages, and then by having the interpreter, uh, the the compiler can actually optimize through the Ruby and Java to the C extension, which is which would not be possible with uh, the native code. You know that when you whenever you do JNI call from mm -hmm. Java, it's slow. And yes. that's not the case with our interpreter because there is no boundary between Java and our yeah. C interpreter. So we actually, with frequent switches between those languages, we actually speed up more and more and more because we have no boundaries and we can really optimize everything. One thing which I didn't mention, this is why I started with the method or function is, I think that the problem with Java and, uh, and Groovy and Scala and all the JVM languages was there is no no common meta object protocol or how to call it. So a function in uh, Scala uh, compiled into bytecode looks differently or, or you have to know what you call, right? But it seems to me that you could actually solve that by because whatever you are doing, there is a method representation in the, in the bytecode. So at the end of the day, uh, Java could just call Java easier with Graal. This is the assumption, not Graal, with Truffle. Is this the right assumption that you, you achieve the uh, the interoperability by having, you know, all the languages interpreted in f through one runtime? I uh, yes, indeed. Uh, we need to have a story for, uh, for example, reading a field from Ruby, yes, uh, from JavaScript, or yes. uh, invoking a method uh, of Python from Ruby. Uh, mm -hmm. So yes, the interop is strong, uh, strong part of that. And actually, that's that's the part I was actually hired into um, Oracle Labs to help with designing APIs for this interop. That's basically but that's as an interesting use case. You know SAS, SAS, S R S S. This is a cross compiler from uh, SCSS to CSS. Yes. So it's like a yeah. And it is written in Ruby, I guess. SAS is Ruby or less, one of this. Well, and, and this always a pain. So you could actually now run SAS on uh, Graal and run the Node.js app also as Graal, and both are interpreted by Graal, and they can very efficiently communicate with each other, for instance. Uh, yes, they... Could, could you not know, just they, thinking about they could, the use yes. cases. I, I didn't know that uh, SAS is written in Ruby. So that's SAS, or, SAS, SAS or less. So one is in JavaScript and the other one is in Ruby. Either SAS or less. So one of them is, is Ruby, and uh, which 
causes some pain in the community, what I understood. And uh, yeah. Oh, uh, in such case we could solve it because people <laughs> yeah, could course. all use GraalVM and that would work smoothly. We don't care about so, the languages, all work fine. <laughs> another cool thing, not mentioned that, I think we covered a little bit Graal and a little bit uh, Truffle, but there's also cool stuff uh, with cool name called Substrate VM. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, that's a basically way how to do ahead of time compilation of Java. And then you get and one binary, one drop in, like in Go. Yes, exactly. That 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 is even uh, no. There are lots of so, so. What you mentioned is uh, that uh, nobody cares about the power consumption. Everybody talks only about the memory consumption when it comes to cloud services. Yes. And well, memory consumption of Java is huge because it needs to keep a lot of uh, meta information around when executing the program, and. Ahead of time compilation done with Substrate VM can solve that all because you get a binary and then you don't need any meta information whatsoever. Everything is in the binary and you run it like Go, you run it like, yeah, you run it like Go. And it runs, mm -hmm. it starts fast because what we actually do is uh, when generating the image, we uh, pre-initialize the program in the real Java virtual machine. So... Uh, all the static initializers can be executed in the host uh, in the Java virtual machine, and only then we take snapshot of the memory, and from that we generate the native image. So you can actually put your application into pre-initialized state, and mm -hmm. then when you start it in one millisecond, you have you are exactly in the state where you want to be, and you can mm -hmm. uh, you can start your computation, which is ideal for function as a service, I'd say. Yes. Yes, this is this is interesting stuff. So, um, remaining thing for today is at, um, so there are different versions how to download Graal VM and the SDK. One is OTN and the other one is open source. So I tried to download something for the Mac. Nothing is available. I will have to use the OTN stuff. So yes, you have to please do so. And generally, using the OTN stuff is uh, better. You will get better results. Yeah, but uh, I have to provide username and password, and this is uh, unusual for the audience stuff. Usually, you have to accept, you know, accept license, or you have to have account. A question to me: Can I build it from sources? Is it painful? Is it possible? Or I should just download the audience stuff? Uh, the open source version shall be download uh, buildable from the sources, but I have not mm -hmm. tried myself. I, okay. I I don't know how painful is that. Uh, sometimes, um, yeah, the dependencies are sort of wild. I remember when I wanted to build a fast R language. It uh, requires Fortran and uh, GCC and stuff like that. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to get the configuration. But I hope that uh, now, when we are open source, we will actually be able to get into the Linux distribution. So then there should be an open source package one day for uh, for Linuxes, and the build should be basically stabilized and standardized. But uh, yeah, uh, better to download the OTN version. I and, say. and you know what is the the idea of OTN is just uh, I, I get the enterprise edition. But the open source edition, why not from GitHub? Is there still some issues or licensing issues, or what's the problem with that? I, do you mean uh, so the it open seems source like edition is available from GitHub, right? But only Linux and uh, the uh, OTN. I get Mac, Linux, and Windows. So this is like honestly, uh, the team was pretty busy uh, during last okay. fourteen days, okay. and 
I'd say it's great success that we have at least the Linux version. <laughs> no, no, okay, I fully understand it. So, so my first uh, there impression should be was no problem in uh, producing the Mac version as well, and there is some demand for the Windows version. So yeah, I assume we will be able to provide a Windows version as well. Yeah, just for development. I usually running Docker and Linux, uh, for so it should be fine with Linux. And uh, I pop uh, and uh, what I this is op- absolutely fine to have the OTM version, like hardened and more tested with more security and support. But I think in long longer term, it should be everything should be at least binary for Mac and binary on Windows should be available also for GitHub. It's more convenient. Yes, uh, that's the goal definitely. So this is your homework to, until our next session, right? That's our homework uh, that we will <laughs> finish by end of summer, I assume. Maybe sooner, so perf- maybe beginning, who knows. But uh, yeah, beginning of summer plus minus six months. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, always good estimation. Um, so uh, really, thank you for the interview. And uh, w- where people can find you? So do you have Twitter and, uh, you know, Graal, VM, resources, whatever you like to to point the, the listeners to? Uh, I think uh, graalvm.org is a natural yes. good start for uh, finding uh, all the information about uh, this uh, Oracle Labs project. And uh, your Twitter account is? Uh, again, GraalVM. That's, uh, that's a, a Twitter account when people can follow uh, our developments. And your development, you are Jaroslav Tulach, where yes, people can uh, find you? So, um, yeah, my Twitter handle is Jaroslav Tulach, um, and mm-hmm. my personal website is apidesign.org. So, API design design, which should be the, uh, one of the topics, if you like, in the forthcoming episodes. That sounds like a good idea, and we still have uh, some topics to cover with uh, Substrate VM, and maybe when you uh, actually when you play with GraalVM, you may have more questions, more yeah. complaints, and I'll be happy to discuss them. Yeah, so I will try to complain as as much as I can. So thank you. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Thanks a lot. And here the next time. Bye.